Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 26, Edward M. Winkleried, Computer Source Code. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Ed M. Winkleried. Ed is the Edward L. Barrett, Jr. Professor of Law Emeritus at UC Davis School of Law. Ed has been a prolific and wide-ranging scholar in the evidence field over the last 40 years, and he has taught evidence and trial practice, among other things. Our podcast today focuses on Ed's new article entitled Computer Source Code, a source of the growing controversy over the reliability of automated forensic techniques. The article addresses an important modern evidentiary problem. As more and more forensic techniques involve computerized tools, when should the underlying source code be made accessible to defense counsel so that the defense can challenge their validity? Ed describes where source code has been and will become a significant point of contention, and he further argues that mandating discovery in certain contexts can be an important part of the criminal adjudicative process. Ed, welcome to the Excited Utterance podcast. Thanks, Ed. Your article is about source code, specifically computer source code, when some type of computerized analysis forms the basis of expert testimony. What context has access to such source code been a significant issue in the past? Do you have a couple of examples for us? Sure. I've been working on the scientific evidence treatise with Paul Ginelli since the mid-1980s. And from the get-go, I was assigned the intoxication testing chapter. And that's really the first setting in which this issue arose. When we shifted to infrared intoxilizers, when we moved away from breathalyzers, in the early part of this century, people began saying, we want the source code for the infrared intoxilizers. And you had a slew of cases first asking the question, is it possible to validate the use of the intoxilizer without presenting testimony about the source code? And secondly, even if you can, can we get discovery of the source code? And I'm seeing these cases trickle in for years. And then a few years ago, we got the new second wave of source code cases involving probabilistic genotyping. And it seemed to me that here we go, it's deja vu all over again. It's the same essential problem. And once again, the two issues that surface are number one, validating the probabilistic genotyping software, and number two, discovery, access to the software. So there have been two waves of the cases, one in the first decade in this century, and the second wave that we're seeing now shifting from intoxilizers to the probabilistic genotyping software. So let me push forward on this distinction you're making between validation or admissibility, which is on the one hand, and on the other, discovery that basically allows opposing counsel to attack the computerized or otherwise specialized analysis, even if it's admitted. Have courts made this distinction when defendants have attacked 
the expert testimony on the basis of the source code either not being available or not being made available to attorneys to look over? One of the reasons I wrote this piece is that it seemed to me that in the past, the courts, and for that matter, the attorneys, really hadn't sorted out the two issues. They basically tended to lump them together and say, if you don't need testimony about the source code in order to validate, you're not even going to get access to the source code. And it brought me back to that line in Daubert when Blackman says, clearly, sometimes evidence that will be capable of being validated, although admissible, will be shaky. And it seems to me that there are situations in which even if you pass muster under the validation reliability standard for Daubert, nevertheless, the testimony is going to be shaking enough that if you make the appropriate showing, you ought to be entitled to some access. Now, as I indicated in the paper, I don't think that reflexively judges should order access to the source code itself. In some cases, at least, it should suffice to allow the opposition to conduct a new validation study. What I was thinking about in the paper, and what's actually very close to what PCAST says in its discussion of the genotyping software, is a range of validation. You look at the validation studies and you ask yourself, what are the parameters here? And PCAS says three contributors, disparity ratio, minor contributor contributing at least 20%, and a certain minimum template size. It seems to me that if you've got a case that fits within those parameters, you're entitled to say we've got validation. Some courts might not even require that. But if the defense can show that there's a salient factor beyond those parameters, for example, there's been very little investigation of the impact of degradation of the sample on the effectiveness and accuracy of probabilistic genotyping software. When the defense can show that there is some parameter that exceeds the range of validation established by the validation studies, then I think there's a case for access. And I was trying to sort out the validation issue and the discovery issue. And I think PCAST does a really nice job in that respect. They talk about the empirically established range for a particular type of software. And that really resonated with me because I thought it was very close to what I inarticulately was trying to say in this piece. The validation range establishes whether you've passed muster under Daubert, but there may be cases in which there's a factor in play in this case that's beyond the validation range. And to some extent, then, the defense ought to have access to explore the significance of that factor. Let me just be clear. So what you're saying here is the method is validated to Daubert standards, and then the access that you're going to give to defense counsel, which is often the case here, is some kind of black box testing. So the defense counsel can either get access to the machine to run their samples, or they can bring the machine to the defense counsel so that they can have other scientists work on the machine. I'd even be willing to give the manufacturer the choice. One of the nice things is that Cybergenetics and Perlin have said, we'll make the software available for validation testing. They've fought on the issue of direct access to the source code, but they've said fairly clearly on several occasions, if you think there's a problem with our validation tests, we'll allow you to conduct a new validation test to explore the factor that you think hasn't been adequately explored. 
Now, Perlin gave a lecture in Indiana in December in which he said there have now been 34 validation studies of true allele, seven of them published, four of them dealing with laboratory work, and three of them dealing with casework. But as I said, as I've surveyed at least the published material, I don't see a lot of investigation of the problem of degradation of the sample. There's investigation with respect to the number of contributors, the disparity ratios, and the template size, but this question of degradation is an important one, and that really hasn't been adequately explored in the validation studies, at least the ones that I've looked at to date. If I like this right of access, and I think this makes sense for a variety of reasons, I think it's in line with the policies of confrontation. It is very similar in some sense to what happened in People v. Collins, which is worried about defense counsel not being able to counter evidence without having access or the ability to look behind the scenes. Why the limitation that you're placing on it, that if there is sufficient validation, then you're not going to provide the source code so that the defense can really pick at it. On one hand, it strikes me as running a bit afoul of Holmes v. South Carolina, that in some sense you're saying, well, the prosecution has good evidence, so therefore the defense is not going to be able to present other kinds of evidence. Now, it's a little different because there's a discovery aspect to this. There is a weighing that's going on that the judge is saying the prosecution has good stuff, therefore the defense doesn't have the same access. Let me first talk about some of the constitutional cases you've mentioned and then get to the merits of the policy issue. One of the things that's troubled me about some of the discussions in this area has been sort of loose use of the constitutional precedents. For example, invoking confrontation as a basis for a discovery right. Norm Garland and I do a book on the Sixth Amendment. And one of the things that we've seen, going back to 1987 in Pennsylvania versus Ritchie, the Supreme Court has said, at least in that case, in Powell's plurality, confrontation is a trial right. It's not a basis for discovery. And similarly, when you're talking about Holmes versus South Carolina, that's a situation in which the defense had the evidence in hand. It wasn't a situation in which they were trying to surmount some privilege hurdle to get it in, some discovery hurdle to get it in. And the thing that's really significant about Pennsylvania versus Ritchie is that the plurality opinion there is written by Powell, who's the author of the lead opinion in Chambers versus Mississippi, probably the foremost endorsement of the constitutional right to present evidence. And what Powell was saying is, we need a more flexible due process context for analyzing the discovery issue. And these are evidence cases like Holmes, like Chambers, like Washington. When you get to the merits of giving general access to the source code, one of the things that I've struggled with over the last 15 years is the big problem of defining the limits of utility in pretrial discovery in the United States. It's certainly not as troublesome on the criminal side, but on the civil side, it's really become a huge problem. We've moved from the old standard of logically relevant to the subject matter, to logically relevant to the pled issues, to now logically relevant and proportional in part because we're beginning to realize the extent to which pretrial discovery has dominated and to some extent distorted the process. You've got the Verizon versus YouTube case in which the judge orders the discovery 
of 12 terabytes of information. And the best estimate is that the Library of Congress amounts to 10 terabytes. Now, you certainly don't have the same problem on the criminal side because criminal discovery has been so much more limited, but I still come back to the proposition that I don't think our system can any longer afford either on the civil side or on the criminal side to say that you have discovery as a matter of right simply because it's relevant. And that's why what I'm trying to do is say the defense is going to come up with a specific criticism of the validation studies. It doesn't speak to, it doesn't adequately explore the problem of degradation. And having that defense showing in the record, I don't think the appropriate judicial response is to say, well, then you get discovery of ever you want. The appropriate response is to say, we'll give you what you need, what's really useful to meeting the criticism that you've made. And you've made a criticism that we don't have adequate exploration of the parameter of degradation, so what we're going to do is give you a fair opportunity to explore that parameter. And it seems to me that that's a useful, sensible way of trying to draw the line with respect to the scope of discovery. Because I think we've just come to the point in terms of the operation of the system that we can't any longer defend the proposition that either in a criminal case or a civil case, discovery has to be as of right simply because the subject matter is relevant. So this is an interesting perspective on this discovery right, because from a variety of podcast episodes that we've done this year, that a lot of the push has been in the criminal context that there needs to be greater discovery, that the defense just simply doesn't have enough access. And in fact, here, what you're suggesting is that the defense is not having enough access to the source code in certain cases. And then you're very wisely limiting it in certain ways. But then there's a tenor to what you're saying here, which is that some of the discovery has run amok. Is that primarily in the civil context that you're talking about? There's no question about that. The run-of-the-mill civil case doesn't have inordinate discovery. But there's a significant percentage of our cases now where discovery is outlandish and not only doesn't facilitate getting to the merits, it prevents getting to the merits. People are just beaten to their knees and have to settle. And one of the things I've learned by traveling overseas and lecturing in other countries is the reaction, particularly of potential foreign litigants, to the discovery rules in the United States. If you talk to most foreign business people, they will tell you if they're sophisticated and know anything about American litigation, they'll say, I don't want to sit foot in an American courtroom because you have these crazy, idiotic discovery rules that will bog down the litigation for years and cost me a fortune before I even get to the merits. We're not anywhere near that when it comes to criminal discovery. But the more I've studied that over the years, the more I've come to the point that you have to have a sensible line drawn. You can't take the position the defense never gets discovery, the defense gets anything that's relevant in the case. There has to be some sensible line. And it seems to me when the defense has voiced a particular criticism, you haven't adequately explored this parameter of the range of cases. The best thing to do, the most sensible thing to do is to give them an opportunity that will adequately allow them to explore that omitted variable, the variable that hasn't been adequately investigated in the validation studies that have been conducted to date. So it's really a struggle trying to come up with something between the polar extremes, give them everything that's relevant, and give them nothing. That's one of the things I'm trying to do in this paper.
Here's another potential efficiency suggestion. This has been bantered around for a long time in the expert evidence world, but it seems like the validity of a system, for whatever this criticism happens to be, is a general property. And so you don't necessarily have to give every individual counsel the ability to challenge it. What you'd like is for this to be challenged once or a few times, and then for it to be solidified as some kind of rule. And if I recall correctly, in the paper, you talk about how New York streamlined things in the alcohol testing context with a pre-approved list. Do you find that to be a sensible way of dealing with this, to have the government or the legislature in some sense resolve the issue for certain technologies or certain machines? Sure. And it's a feasible solution because in the majority of jurisdictions, even though it's the courts that use these evidentiary rules on a daily basis, under the state constitutions, it's the legislature that has the plenary power to prescribe evidentiary rules. Now, you have to be assured that the government's going to make a thoroughgoing investigation. But we're seeing more and more in states like Texas, government agencies that are looking into forensic science, there's more seriousness, there's more concern about the quality of forensic science. And it seems to me that this is a time when that becomes a topic to be talked about. Because it's not just in New York. There are a number of states, including, for example, Minnesota, where we have the same thing. You've got a list of approved products. You've got certification standards for the people who use the intoxilizer. And what the statute says is, if you use something on the approved list, and if you have a certified operator, that's sufficient authentication. There's no need to lay a typical Fry or Daubert foundation. And so long as you can assume that the government has done a good job investigating what to put on the approved product list, that is an efficient approach to the problem. And it certainly is likely to be a more thorough investigation than any particular criminal defense counsel would be able to mount. A final question for you. Are there other aspects of this question of access to source code that you'd like to do or you'd like to see further research on in the future? If I'm an ambitious junior professor and I'm inspired <laughs> by this discussion, where should I look next? One of the things I've learned over the years studying scientific evidence is that things vary so much from context to context. And the point is that even though the case law has surfaced primarily with respect to infrared intoxilizers and probabilistic genotyping, the point is this problem's virtually everywhere now, in part because of efficiency considerations. The labs are trying to phase out manual, single forensic analyses and phase in these automated techniques. So it seems to me that over the whole broad domain of forensic science, you're likely to see more and more of these thoroughly automated procedures. And you can't necessarily leap from the conclusion that it's valid in this context to the conclusion that this new type of software that we've developed for another forensic task is also valid. So it seems to me the thing to do is to open your vistas and see that we're surrounded by this source code. I began the article with a quotation from a professor from University College London. We're increasingly governed by source code. If we do not recognize that our processes and procedures are gradually becoming source code, then we risk a technological tyranny. And 
I think Markman Harman's right. It's out there everywhere now in forensic science, not just in the area I've written about, not just in the area of intoxication testing, but we're seeing it in virtually every area now where they're trying to process large volumes of samples efficiently. And it seems to me that those areas also warrant investigation. Well, Ed, I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to have you on the podcast. I've appreciated so much of your really wide-ranging scholarship in the evidence field over the years, and it's been great to have you as a guest. So thanks for making the time. Thank you for having me, Ed. Far and above the most persistent theme on Excited Utterance this year has been production. Evidence law is often thought about in terms of admissibility rules, rules that tell us what evidence to leave out. But time and time again, today's scholars seem to be focusing on how to get more evidence in. Ed's paper follows this theme. In the automated forensic context, he distinguishes between validity and access. Separating these two concepts makes plain that the truth-seeking function of trials requires both. And while Ed is surely right in distinguishing Crawford and Holmes as a doctrinal matter, I would firmly maintain that conceptually, both doctrines have a deep kinship to the idea of providing access to source code. Confrontation is about the ability to challenge testimonial witnesses. Here, we speak of the ability to challenge machines, much like in Andrea Roth's episode on machine testimony. Similarly, Holmes and Chambers are often linked to compulsory process and the right to present a defense. In a witness-based world, compulsory process enables the calling of critical witnesses. In an automated one, the only practical option is some form of access or discovery. At the end of the day, of course, Ed is right. To make the system function both accurately and practically, we face a Goldilocks problem in designing criminal discovery rules. Too liberal a rule, and we end up with civil discovery, where cases have occasionally and famously run amok. Too strict a rule, and defendants are placed at the mercy of the government, since counsel will be hard-pressed to challenge the forensic evidence. Finding that sweet spot is the challenge for Ed and the system as a whole. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance was generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Randstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. Research assistance for this episode was provided by Ben Bassoff, and the production editor was Carson Smith. Music was provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Cheng, and I hope you will join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Mm-hmm.